Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy. We dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. I'm Molly Wood. This week, we're exploring a topic that once seemed fanciful, or at least maybe not that likely, and a little bit controversial. That topic is carbon removal, literally taking carbon dioxide out of the air and storing it so it doesn't keep warming the planet. In 2022, when a lot of other stuff was going on, so people didn't pay as much attention as they might have otherwise, the UN's climate panel released a report that said, basically, developing carbon removal technology is non-optional, in addition to cutting emissions. That is, of course, if we want to limit global warming to levels that won't trigger catastrophic outcomes in terms of biodiversity, species and crop loss, and increasingly extreme weather, which, you know, I think we do. So lots of companies and scientists are working on carbon removal technology. Right now, it's happening at a very small scale, and it's expensive, and some people have criticized it as a way for humans to keep emitting carbon instead of cutting overall emissions. But listen, you know me, I ain't about the problems. If it's not optional, let's look at who's working on it. And that's what this week's guest is here to discuss. I am Charles Cadieu, the co-founder and CEO of Spiritus, and we provide carbon removal services uh, with high quality and at an accessible price using direct air capture. There is so much to dig into about the actual company, but I have to start with the name. Oh, yeah. Where did the name Spiritus come from? <laughs> Spiritus, indeed, yeah. It is from the Latin to breathe, and we just feel it's uh, kind of inspiring to think about kind of giving human civilization, the ability to kind of give lungs back to the earth and get the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Okay, so let's start with, I'm going to sort of take your description of the company piece by piece. Let's start mm -hmm. with carbon removal, which I think for some people is all by itself a topic that they're unfamiliar with. So tell us what that is and why it's so important. It, indeed, yeah. I think this is a perspective on, on climate change that is becoming more and more uh, relevant and pressing and uh, people are starting to understand the need here. And really carbon removal is the process of taking that CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it away in a way that it no, will no longer affect climate change and create you know, warming uh, effects. And this is you know, different than uh, I think of the majority, I think of climate talk, which is about like mitigation, mm -hmm. where we're trying to just stop emitting as much as we have in the past. Mm -hmm. And people, uh, of course, are making huge progress on this, you know, in terms of alternative energy and um, various things like electric cars. Uh, but the reality is that uh, in order to meet some of these climate goals, we are just going to be challenged to get away with just, just reducing emissions. What we have to really start doing is removing those emissions, taking that CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it away. And there's a couple of perspectives, you know, on how this is, uh, this need is needed. There's this macro perspective about, you know, what are our climate goals as a human civilization and how do we keep, you know, below certain 
warming thresholds. And honest truth is just we're not reducing emissions enough to meet those those goals. And really, the models are telling us that we've got to start removing carbon at a really astounding scale uh, to meet those goals. Uh, so I think that's sort of a macro perspective. And then, of course, there's sort of our, our own individual perspectives as you know, running companies or as individuals. And how do we move from emitting or even just reducing emissions, but to even actually getting to net zero and even removing our emissions from, from the past? And that's really the important difference of removal versus carbon mitigation or, or emissions reductions. Right. It feels like it is um, almost a dirty little secret, which feels like an accidental pun. Um, this This sort of growing awareness that because we're not reducing emissions fast enough, the only way, I mean, I think I first heard it, frankly, from Greta Thunberg, right? That 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 it was being unsaid mm-hmm. that really the only way to meet targets would be through removing carbon and that that led to this kind of race to figure out methods, both natural and technological, right? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, it, indeed, indeed. And uh, it's sort of a, a bit of a mystery as to why, why that is to me, you know, that that we've kind of reached that that point in uh, addressing climate change. But I think, you know, one, you know, sad reality is that we hadn't, you know, acted fast enough um, and we're not continuing to act, you know, fast enough. And, you know, new energy production, you know, globally uh, is a major issue. There's some like sort of the physics and the earth science of it as well, which is that the CO2 just stays in the atmosphere for an awfully long time. Right. And so even if you just, you know, turn off the spigot, you know, today, it has essentially like, you know, a hundred year or like, you know, multi-generational effect here. And what that means is that, you know, we had to stop emissions, you know, generations ago. And here we are having not done that. And so really the, you know, removal becomes a, a need. Another perspective on it is also just the the how and it does sort of seem both magical and like a, a, a duh moment. Like, well, why don't we just take the CO2 out of the atmosphere? Right. And it's like, why don't we just solve that in the okay, most direct way possible? <laughs> and like the one, you know, beautiful um, origin story of some of this CDR and direct air capture technology was a uh, conversation between a, a scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory and his daughter. And he was talking about climate change and the CO2 in the atmosphere. And she said, well, why don't we just take the CO2 out of the atmosphere? Hmm. And that was a little, you know, spark of a moment for that scientist. And he began to think, you know, how could we actually do this? And that was uh, a bit more than 20 years ago. And that uh, sort of dinner dinner conversation, you know, propagated a bit of uh, uh, the first forays into how do we actually do this from a technical point of view? It is certainly challenging, and that's you know really where, where Spiritus comes in to try to solve that that challenge. Right. And then one last question before we get more into what Spiritus does. Uh, this is also, it feels like it's important to draw a bright line when people talk about, for example, planting millions of trees or billions of trees. It is in order for them to act as a carbon sink, mm-hmm. right? That that carbon removal is encompasses this idea of natural carbon sinks and that we have kind of realized that's not enough. Or not feasible. It, it, indeed, indeed, and I'm not. I'm not trying to make you the bad guy yeah. on the tree topic here, but <laughs> <laughs> indeed, yeah, there's, there's stepping into some, uh, uh, some, uh, some territory here. Uh, My but the, philosophy on the show is that we need everything. So let's just spe- let's stipulate that we need everything. Because <laughs> exactly. I will put that premise on the table that we do- definitely need everything, and yeah, yeah, forestry is a very direct you know path there, and that's why people have gotten behind it because it's uh, a very you know accessible. Um, you know, the cost points there are there to uh, make it, you know, viable for meeting, you know, certain goals. So it makes tremendous sense. 
you, you, when you start running numbers, you just starting to get into some challenges of you know, how this is really going to meet those removal goals that we have set for civilization or even just individual companies. I mean, I think there's been certain situations where certain specific companies, you know, have, you know, touted their, their net, you know, zero goals. And even just for a single company, it can be that they're going to plant, you know, the entire earth of, of trees. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, phenomenal amount of, uh, of land and, and impact effectively that, that would be had there. So that being said, that is part of the solution, you know, and then the question then becomes, you know, how do we have something more scalable and from an impact point of view and, you know, really create and create, we call it sustainable stewardship of the atmosphere. It's like, how do we uh, create this resource, this shared resource of the atmosphere where we utilize by, you know, having uh, emissions that we have had or or will have in the future that we can't avoid uh, and be able to take that CO2 out and make it more circular or have a situation where it's more under our control than it just feels like completely out of our control. Mm-hmm. And these technology solutions, we, you know, I think the field is feeling that this is necessary uh, beyond the forestry and it has, you know, ver- a variety of, you know, scalable impacts. Uh, you know, our, our technology can, can easily do, you know, a thousand times more carbon removal per acre than a forest can. Mm-hmm. And secondly, when we store that carbon, like underground, for example, uh, the durability, it's going to stay down there for, thousands, maybe millions of years where, you know, forestry has, you know, impact from forest fire. It sort of is in a more fragile uh, position than, than otherwise we can with, with these technology solutions. Right. Okay. Let's talk about technology. What goes into CDR? You've mentioned a couple of times, carbon dioxide removal and specifically direct air capture. What goes into doing that? Yeah, there's a phenomenally expansive space in the the technology here it's, it's super exciting you know new solutions are coming up uh nearly daily here uh, mm-hmm. of how we we try to do this and the process of you know removing the carbon you often are doing it with you know uh, chemistries that you know grab onto that co2 in, in some way uh it then is like cycled such that we can release that co2 and then we can have that co2 then stored in, in some me- method or uh, used into products. And there's a couple of different avenues for all those different choices along the technology of capture, the technology of storage, the technology of transformation, CO2 transformation. Uh, so it's a you know big, uh, amazing field uh, mm-hmm. and just a lot of different solutions that are that are out there. And you know our, our perspective on this is that uh, cost is kind of the king here in terms of how you actually meet the need at scale. Uh, and we kind of analyze that from that that principle, like you know, our internal metrics, the the guiding principles from the top to the bottom are all about how do we do this at the lowest cost possible, such that our customers can meet more of their net zero goals with higher quality carbon removal. All right, let's talk about you then. Let's talk about what how you're doing it because it it does feel as though you have been a little bit the anointed one in terms of the technology you've created. Okay. Tell me about the technology you've created and how it works and, and how it does drive down cost. Yeah, we are a group of uh, you know scientists, engineers that have come together to really solve that problem from a first principles uh, uh, perspective. And we have been privileged to kind of look at some of those solutions that have come before us and seen you know, the major challenges in uh, the way that director capture is done today. And we're big fans of many of those approaches that are out there. We kind of have looked at the best of, of multiple categories. And so simply what we've done is created a, a breakthrough solid sorbent approach, which is like a material that soaks up CO2. And this material is really a game changer. It, it is a breakthrough. Uh, there's innovations that my co-founder, Matt Lee, has brought to the table here that change the game for these types of 
materials. The numbers speak for themselves then. We're able to do this 10 times faster, soak up CO2 10 times faster than other state-of-the-art sorbents. We're able to make the sorbent at like one-tenth the cost. We're then able to use less than one-half the energy of previous approaches. The cost of the facility is also in certain key components, like one-sixth of what's previously uh, been achieved before. So it's not magic, but you do got to get all of these elements to line up correctly to drive down costs uh, dramatically across the table. And that's how you're able to get to uh, you know, high quality carbon removal with director capture that is at a more affordable price that allows people to you know, really uh, make that a real meaningful part of their portfolios and get to that scale that you know is really needed. I love uh, a guy who's saying it's not magic, but... <laughs> Okay, time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more about this sorbent, which you'll see described elsewhere as kind of like a lung and how it becomes part of a carbon-sucking orchard straight out of sci-fi. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. We're talking with Charles Cadieu, co-founder and CEO of Spiritus, a carbon removal company that's raised millions of dollars from high-profile venture capitalists about the company's technology and about some of the objections to the idea of removing carbon dioxide instead of just emitting less in the first place. First, though, more about that magic. So let's break it down even further. You have a fe- you have invented a novel. I love any sentence, by the way, that starts with it. It's, it's not magic, but it's not magic, but it's super close. Um, you have a, invented a material that can attract and absorb CO two, and then that CO two can be removed from that material, so it can be reused again. That that's exactly right. Okay, and like, how is it deployed? Because I'm picturing a t-shirt gun, and I'm certain that that's not accurate. <laughs> I'll take that back to the mechanical engineers as a, as a new concept here, the t-shirt gun, <laughs> carbon removal. Everything, I feel like everything at some point could involve a t-shirt gun. Indeed, indeed. Or a similar technology. Indeed. We look at the sorbent, uh, we call it like an artificial fruit, where it is like in an orchard. And we have many, many of these uh, ball-shaped uh, sorbents that are soaking up CO2. And the beauty of this one that we've created uh, it doesn't require fans to force air inside of that material. It is so porous and so uh, accessible to the air that the air and the CO2 is just able to go right inside of it and be grabbed onto the the surfaces of that uh, that sorbent, that that uh, that artificial fruit. It's kind of like a, a lung inside there, mm-hmm. uh, where it has these pathways that go and branch and branch and create you know, tremendous amounts of surface area. But at the same time, you can get a lot of air in and out of it. That's the first part where we just put this sorbent out into uh, the environment to collect CO2. The second part is then we then transport that back in to desorb it to get that CO2 off of the uh, the sorbent. 
And we do that using low temperatures, which makes it accessible uh, for energy inputs from renewable sources and low cost in terms of energy that's needed to make this happen. That sorbent then is able to go back out and to reabsorb uh, CO2 out there in the environment. And that process repeats over and over again, which then allows us to make really efficient use of that, that sorbent and that, uh, that material, even though we're able to produce it for such low cost, we're even able to get a lot of uh, cycles and utility out of that, uh, that, that sorbent. I know I'm being extremely literal, but what does this look like and where does this or will this deployment happen? Like, are you deploying deploying the fruits <laughs> around, for example, a, a highly emitting facility or can they just sort of go anywhere? Yeah, we create you know, the, the fruit into what a concept we call uh, a spiritus carbon orchard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit like a solar farm. We've got carbon orchards. And the really the beauty of this whole process of direct air capture is that you can do it anywhere. You don't need to do it near smokestacks or where there's emissions or big cities or where you think about typically you know sources of pollution. CO2 in the atmosphere across the globe is, is very well distributed. And therefore, we can do direct air capture anywhere. And therefore, we do it in the places that make the most sense to make it the easiest. And... Where does it become the easiest? Well, it has to do with where you store that CO2 after you've captured it. And that's a process called geological sequestration, which is kind of a big word for just uh, saying we're going to bury it underground in specific geological formations that can trap and hold CO2 underneath the, the Earth's surface. And therefore, like we put these carbon orchards right on top of those geological formations that can hold the CO2. Mm. And there's a, a phenomenal capacity in the United States. I think you know, the United States is going to be, uh, I believe it's going to become you know the worldwide leader in this whole field because of some of these, the, the technology side, but then also the uh, the geology and the ability to store CO2 at, at massive, massive quantities. So these carbon orchards uh, will be going up uh, right above these sequestration areas. And we are well on our way to making that a reality. And uh, we'll definitely be having some announcements about that uh, uh, around the corner. Mm, about new new orchard deployments? That's right. That's right. Amazing. What are the geological characteristics that make it a good spot to store carbon underground? Yeah, the formations, I like to think of them as upside down coffee cups. So you've got some sort of like dome-like shape underneath the ground and Remember, down below the surface of the Earth, there's like you know ten thousand many feet below there, with many different layers over the millennia that have you know formed, and you can find these like upside down coffee cups that are like an impermeable cap rock. So mm-hmm. it's like a really hard shell on top, and inside you've got really really salty sandy water uh, below that. Mm-hmm. And what you then do is you take that coffee cup, you drill your well from the top to the surface all the way to the side of that coffee cup. You then poke your hole in the side of that coffee cup and you then inject your CO2 in a state where it's a little bit uh, lighter than, than water. So it's going to, f- the CO2 is going to float to the top there and you essentially fill your coffee cup from the top to the bottom with CO2. And because of that hard rock on the top, the CO2 can't get out. And because of the water below it, it can't get out the bottom and it will then just stay down there in a way that 
you know, most most people think it will stay down there for like millennia, just as in, in other formations, like oil and gas has stayed down there for millions of years, properly chosen, properly monitored. Uh, these for, you know, sequestration systems of these wells and carefully chosen areas uh, are likely to hold CO2 for uh, for indefinitely, you know, uh, beyond our horizon. Wow. That is fascinating. It also sounds, as you describe it, like something that um, could represent a fairly easy skills transfer from, you know, people and companies that are already doing all kinds of drilling. Oh, a- a- absolutely. Like, let's say you weren't drilling for oil and gas anymore. You can still have jobs sequestering carbon. Oh, a- a- absolutely. There's there's tremendous uh, transference of skill sets. Even just the the fact of like trying to find these formations, hmm. it's sort of like uh, taking oil and gas prospecting and finding the places where you were unsuccessful. It's like we want to find places where there were duds, where you found these formations that didn't actually hold oil and gas, but had the right shape as if they they could have. So people that have those skill sets from seismology and and surveying and uh, and geology very applicable. Then when it comes to um, you know building out the models of how the the CO two is going to be you know moving through those formations when you pump it in there, uh, the actual welling uh, and the drilling, all all those service professionals that come through the whole stack uh, are completely transferable here. And uh, I do imagine you know at a point in time where. We've gotten like the regulation, the technology, and the market uh, figured out where uh, we are, you know, certifying new wells every couple months, just as if you're, you know, us- utilizing a like an oil and gas field, you might be putting in a new well every every month or two. Here we're going to be finding these formations where we can source CO2, and every month or two we're going to put a new well in there uh, to meet the demand as the as the orchards scale and the uh, the market is in, you know sort of seeing this as a solution to their net zero goals. One quick follow-up just on on the orchard, which I love as a concept. We talked a little bit about kind of the land, you know, there's always this question of cost and also land use when it comes to these solutions. Mm-hmm. How big does an orchard have to be compared to maybe like in in concrete terms, but also maybe compared to that, you know, question of planting mm. a trillion trees? Yeah, the, the short answer with compared to, to, to forestry and 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 trees, uh these carbon orchards are 1,000 to even 3,000 times more carbon capturing per acre. So you just get a tremendous amount uh, more utilization and from this type of technology than, than you do from, from forestry. You know, mm. Forests are not designed to capture carbon. They, they do that to you know, stand up the trees and the leaves and all, but uh, it's uh, not their sole purpose where these orchards uh, that we create, these carbon orchards are really designed to do that uh, as efficiently as possible. Uh, in terms of you know the the acreage um, you know position, you know, we're talking about things that are on the order of like kind of solar farms today. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of their their land footprint, when you start to you know expand them out over over some regions, and so they will you know create some impacts uh, on the land. Uh, but in order to get to you know the goals of like removing all of the United States emissions, this is a very achievable uh, land footprint uh, using this uh, type of technology. Tell me where you are as a company in terms of funding and deployment. Mm-hmm. We're not quite at that. We're not quite at that uh, nationwide scale just yet. No, not not just yet. Not just yet. Yeah, we're coming off a, an exciting year here. We announced our, our seed round with uh, Coastal Ventures. You know, a great, phenomenal climate tech investor. Uh, they've looked at a tremendous number of uh, companies in this space and had passed on all of them until 
uh, Spiritus and just saw that that cost uh, that we were able to bring to the table. Uh, we've also gotten our first purchasing from Frontier, announced that earlier this year in an advanced uh, market commitment and advanced purchase to, to Spiritus with Stripe and Shopify. We've also- And for those, I'll jump in here, for those who are not familiar, Frontier is a, a, at least it started, I think, as a billion dollar fund, but a fund set up specifically to do procurement of carbon capture, right? That That's exactly right. And uh, then they look to you know providers or service providers like us to to fulfill those those contracts and so they are you know, helping to to spur that that market demand which is so critical for these uh, these early technologies so we've had a purchase from them we've also uh, had purchasing from Terraset which allows individuals to buy carbon removal uh, and actually get uh, tax benefits for that hmm. we've also had purchasing through uh, watershed which helps companies uh, you know meet their net zero goals and and helps uh, advise them on that and then uh, enables them to you know buy removal through that that process as well. What does that price look like? It's it's per ton, right? It's per ton. It's per ton, indeed. Uh, and so we are you know signing up customers uh, here at those early prices, uh, but we are seeing this pathway to that hundred dollars per ton, uh, which is really uh, what a lot of people feel is like the holy grail for uh, high quality direct air capture, which will really just unlock that market and provide. You know, a real solution um, versus a technology that's hoping to get there. Right. You alluded earlier to this idea of, of a circular market. Um, it sounds like right now you're focused on sequestering carbon, but what else could this carbon be? You know, I've talked to a company that's using direct air capture carbon to make diamonds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk to us about sort of like what else this material could potentially be used for in the future. Yeah, indeed, the CO2 transformation uh, technologies and market is, is a really fascinating one. I think people are quite excited about, uh, well, jet fuel is the one that people tout uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit. And uh, I think there is an opportunity for that uh, that future. There's other like polymers and plastics and things like that, which are also uh, accessible and, and, and likely uh, very achievable from those technologies. Um, that is sort of the second part, you know, uh, of this whole equation. We can think about sequestration for our current needs and, uh, and that circular carbon economy out there in the future. Where, let's say, we're in a situation where you know energy is inexpensive, but it's really about where and when you can use that energy. And when you're doing a, a transcontinental flight, it's just kind of hard to get uh, solar panels up there and get that low energy uh, to where you need it. And so. You know, maybe that, um, you know, these fuels, uh, jet fuel is going to be a needed, you know, resource for uh, for us for a long time. And so if we could have a situation where as you know, you're flying, you emit the CO2, but then you've got these facilities on the ground that effectively vacuum up that CO2 from the atmosphere and then turn it back into jet fuel and send it down to LAX to, to repeat the cycle. That is a sustainable, you know, future here that some people are excited about and may allow us to you know, keep per- certain aspects of our of our lives, you know, uh, moving forwards, and and to give those to you know f- further generations, and also the developing world that also wants to do these things that we do on a daily basis here in the U.S. Yeah, I wonder. I want to get your perspective on that. One of the you know, I, I think early on in the in the carbon capture and director capture conversation, there was this resistance, which I liken actually to some of the early resistance, the idea of adaptation. And resilience, right? Which is like we need to focus every ounce of energy and dollar on mitigation and emitting less. And so, one of the 
sort of bubbling controversies about uh, removal is that it allows, you know, these practices to continue, these kind of um, polluting fossil fuel burning practices. What What is your perspective on that? Yeah, in, indeed. Yeah, this is a, a complex, you know, kind of moral thicket. And mm -hmm. I, I do think the honest answer is that they do start to allow you to continue to emit. Mm -hmm. And let me just make maybe make an analogy to try to get um, one way that I've tried to think about this a bit, which is that let's say we take our 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 use of um, you know, things in our home that eventually need to be thrown out, like food or other types of, of waste, and uh, in some ways, you know, CO two in the atmosphere is as as another type of waste uh, that's present here. And if you go back into our home and you think, all right, we have trash collection today, and that you know removes waste and does that actually make me think less about the things I bring into my home because I'm able to have an easy trash collection? Well, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you know, I probably do create more waste because I have trash collection. But you know, to tell me that that we should stop trash collection so that I can stop, you know, buying so much stuff and creating more waste. I mean, that seems like a pretty preposterous proposal here. Mm -hmm. But in the atmosphere, we're just in a different situation where we haven't, you know, invented trash collection yet. We haven't invented that uh, CO2 removal yet. And so for those to say that, you know, we should not admit that, we should not invent that trash collection because that might allow people to continue to emit. Well, I mean, I feel like that's just a challenging uh, proposition to, to stand on. I like it in the, in the idealistic sense, but I think in the practical sense, I just would prefer a, wor a world that we do have trash collection that does allow us to create, you know, sustainable stewardship of the atmosphere in a way that we, you know, kind of take for granted in other aspects of our life, whether it's, uh, you know, in our home uh, or wastewater disposal. You know, we can't really imagine a world without those things. And I think this is really the third pillar of civilizational uh, waste removal. So we've got water treatment and water and sewage. We've got uh, trash collection, and we really need carbon removal as that third pillar so that civilization can. You know, move forwards in a way where we uh, are able to engage in those activities that you know make life great, uh, but in a responsible way that takes care of their impacts. Right, and I th and you make an excellent point about industrialization. There's you know the the conversation we often tend to have is about rich countries and rich people and what we produce and emit and use, and that's an important place to start. But there are countries who have yet to fully industrialize who are likely to do so with the cheapest available fuels, and those might still be fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. That it may likely be the case. And of course, that's a constant uh, struggle, you know, when you're trying to set these these goals at the international level. And you know, it, it gets even um, even a little bit more wicked when you think about it, uh, where, which is that, uh, uh, you know, the developed world has really been responsible for the vast majority of those emissions. And here, you know, we're in a position where you know, we're going to try to put the economic break on others because we've admitted um, that that's a very challenging proposition, I feel, to, to make here. And so I think, you know, focus on solutions, focus on removal as one of these uh, pillars, drive down the cost such that we can uh, go faster towards that that net zero and that balancing out the, uh, the carbon economy. And that technology can hopefully be part of the solution uh, for you know, the developing world and also for you know for the developed world where you know energy is a real uh, cost today it's, it's not how we just live in a free energy world here you know gas prices are a thing 
they do put a break on on the economy uh, and you know having technologies that just allow us to find better strategies to net zero is is, is I think uh, a good thing for everyone mm-hmm. and then let's talk briefly about carbon pricing you mentioned that sort of hundred dollar a ton price that people feel will unlock this economy can you explain that a little bit more yeah it, it, indeed and of course we want it to be as low as cost as possible you know but what cost you know it really uh, makes this uh, attainable as, as part of the uh, the solution so if you think about you know how much each one of us emits like in the in the United States uh, it's about 16 tons per year and if you think about trying to mitigate some of that and then how much is left would we do through removal well if you start to get uh, you know mitigating let's say half of our emissions as, as individuals in the US and we get those price points down to that hundred dollars per ton uh, then all of a sudden the cost of removal of carbon removal to get yourselves net zero to get themselves net net neutral there uh, is about the same price that we pay today for wastewater treatment. So it's like you know another utility bill, and no one wants another bill. But <laughs> you know the the wastewater treatment uh, bills that we've got today, um, you know are are um, are not insurmountable, right? It's it's like a sort of very a standard thing that we that we just uh, take for granted, uh, but we see of course the value from that. And if you can get carbon removal into that hundred dollar price point, all of a sudden that you know third pillar of waste removal becomes just another utility bill that's part of society and allows us to you know function without the cataclysmic effects of climate change and all that goes along with it. What does in our last couple of minutes? What does the timeline look like for deploying this technology at scale? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm suggests that that's the question. Yeah. <laughs> That that is that is the question, <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I always want to go faster, and we are pushing as fast as we as we possibly can. Uh, we see you know major deployments by the end of this decade, uh, where they are you know really having some some impact in terms of uh, uh, removals, and then in the next you know decades after that to, to get to like twenty fifty. We think that there's a, a massive scaling that can happen, you know, with that market coming uh, to bear, with you know governmental support, with societal you know support uh, across the board, where the field would like to get to you know 10 billion tons of removal per year by by 2050, mm-hmm. and so we've got a long ways to go, uh, but we're you know talking about getting to you know millions of tons by the end of this decade with these high quality uh, technologies, uh, and if the cost and the price point can prove out. Over these next few years, uh, I think that's very attainable. That that you know, ten billion tons. Fantastic, Charles Cadieux of Spiritus. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate this. this. is fascinating. Sure. Thank you, Molly. Happy to be here. That's it for this week's episode of Everybody in the Pool. Thank you so much for listening. For a longer discussion of carbon capture and more details about some of the other players in the space, please check out the weekly Everybody in the Pool newsletter, which you can find at everybodyinthepool.com, along with all our episodes and, yes, transcripts at long last. Please email me your thoughts and suggestions to in at everybodyinthepool.com. And as we finish the first month of a new year here on the show, I want to shout out the amazing people who are making this podcast and my little company possible. Robin Edgar is my incredible sound engineer. Rachel Braun is doing production and social posting. And Coco Jones is working on biz dev in case, you know, you want to become a sponsor. We're doing it, folks. See you next week. <laughs>